Are you at a crossroads in life with unanswered questions? How does your past connect to your present life? October Hallam can help you discover how your past connects to your present and is shaping your future. October is an intuitive, healer, empath, and medium with over 20 years of experience helping people navigate through some of life's greatest challenges. A recent client from Egypt says, October is pure magic. We keep coming back for more and recommended her to our closest friends. If you would like to book a session with October, please contact her at theancientgift222 at gmail.com. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is L.A. Marzulli. Before I bring him on, I want to thank all of you that watch, listen, and support the show. Even though I'm still on YouTube, I am demonetized and, of course, shadow banned. So give our podcast version a listen. It's available on all the popular podcast platforms. It's another great way to hear episodes. And also, please subscribe to our backup channel on lbry.com. And finally, huge thanks to all of you that have made donations. You guys are amazing. Uh, if you'd like to leave a donation, the links are in the description. Um, also, if you're concerned about food shortages in the near future, please check out My Patriot Supply. Right now, you can get $70 off a two-week and $100 off a four-week supply of their nutritious food. It stays good up to 25 years in storage. Just click the link in the description or visit preparewithfkn.com to get your supply today. Tonight, I want to welcome back to the show L.A. Marzulli. He is an author, lecturer, and filmmaker. He has penned eight books, including the Nephilim Trilogy, which made the CBA bestsellers list. He received an honorary doctorate for his mentor, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas, who was the provost at Pacific International University. His book, On the Trail of the Nephilim, Definitive Proof of Biblical Giants, is a full-color, oversized book which uncovers the startling evidence that there has been a massive cover-up of what he believes are the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. He has taken on the trail of the Nephilim and created a film series that continues his research with interviews from people in their specific field of knowledge. Where the book left off, he continues his research and is on the trail. L.A., welcome back. How are you tonight? Great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. I look forward to these types of episodes. Uh, our true hidden history is so much more fascinating than anything modern academia has been allowed to publish or they've established their narrative with. Uh, they, of course, rewrite the areas that don't fit the official historical records. But because of independent researchers like yourself, uh, more and more of this incredible history is being revealed. And I don't think they'll be able to keep our uh, ancient past a history for um, a secret for too much longer. Um, you just look at how many so-called conspiracy theories were actually proven true this year alone. Um, and Ella, you were actually one of the very first guests I've ever had. And uh, I think you were the, uh, the second guest. So it's been a couple of years since you've been on the show. Uh, I'd love to hear again, what just got you started down your path uh, of uh, searching for these ancient secrets. Well, I, was, uh, I became a born-again Christian 40 years ago, and uh, before that, I was involved in the New Age. I was, uh, from a time of probably 16 to 30, uh, I, I was voraciously reading books by Carlos Castaneda, uh, The Fakirs in India. I read Eric von Donikin's Chariots of the Gods, which was a life-changing book. I mean, that book, you know, just, I just sat there with my jaw on the ground. And when I became a born-again, spirit-filled Christian at 30 years old, um, all that was sort of set aside for 10 years. And then when I was 40 years old, right, 40 years old, that's when I started to rethink everything I had read before and look at it from a different paradigm. And that led me on the trail that I've been on since, basically, since uh, 1990. So, you know, we're looking at 30 years of of research, which has culminated in many, many films. We have 10 films in the Watcher series, nine films of my own, 13 books, 
So it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing deal here. Uh, I mean, my friend, Matt, he always texts me when I'm on his show. It just never <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is what I do and I love it. And it, it's, it's just, it's a privilege to do it. And, um, you know, it's, the research is ongoing. We've got hours and hours and hours of film that I haven't even touched on yet. So we're, we're working on a new UFO film and there'll be more on that in the not too distant future. That's really awesome. Uh, one of your areas of research that I'm really fascinated with is the ancient mounds and the mound builders. Uh, I'd like to start there. For those that aren't really familiar with the mounds and what they are, could you kind of give a brief overview of what the, these mounds are that cover, you know, across the United States? Well, the, the, uh, the, um, the, the mound builders are, are it's, it's very enigmatic, and it goes from really the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico, follows the Mississippi all the way down, and it tributaries out. Uh, no one really knows who these people or entities really were, or even what they called themselves. Nobody has any idea. So it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's absolutely profound and amazing. There are 10,000 mounds in Ohio alone. There are mounds like in Cahokia, which is the largest of all the mounds in America, about 450,000 tons of earth. Uh, Poverty Point, we filmed at all these places, by the way. Not all of them, but many of them. Obviously, we haven't gone to 10,000 different mound sites, but we've been to a lot of them and we filmed there. And hats off to our good friend, Fritz Zimmerman, who usually accompanies, accompanies us and is our guide to many of the mounds, like Seat Mound and, and uh, uh, one of my favorite, favorite mound complexes, Fort Ancient, also in Ohio. Fort Ancient, let's start there. Fort Ancient is a 3.5-mile wall, continuous wall. 3.5 miles of earthen walls heaped up. Some of, these, some of the mounds are 20 to 30 feet tall, okay, uh, which is absolutely mind-boggling. And when, when you think about this, uh, <laughs> how did Native Americans supposedly make these with the shoulder bones of deer or clamshell hose or primitive digging sticks? And we get into all this in the very first episode, Mound Builders, Mysterious Mound Builders. And we show that, uh, and we actually use the archeologist, or, or I should say the docent who works or did work, I'm not sure he's still there or not, at, at uh, Fort Ancient. And he says on the record, he says, if you were to deconstruct the 3.5 miles of continuous earthen walls and take all that dirt and put it in the dump trucks, you would have 200 miles of dump trucks end to end, bumper to bumper. Well, that's, that's an impossibility uh, for a, a group of so-called you know, hunter-gatherers. It's, it's just nonsensical. 200 miles of dump trucks end to end? Do we realize how much dirt that is? And we're supposed to believe that a, a culture of hunter-gatherers spent all their time creating these. And we're saying, no, they didn't. Uh, some of them may have been employed, but this is Nephilim architecture, fallen angel technology. And that's, the, that's the official narrative that these primitive uh, hunter-gatherers were, were building this, and it wasn't any type of advanced civilization or anything like that. Well, that's, that, that's what mainstream archaeologists uh, insist is what's right. going on. Yeah, they tell us that, that all this was done by Native Americans. But Native Americans stayed on the record, and we show this in the film, that when they came into these places, they were already there. And they had been abandoned for centuries, okay? They were abandoned for centuries when Native Americans came in. And unfortunately, there's no cameras, you know, a thousand years ago when Native Americans started coming into some of these sites. Um, but they say on the record, like, for instance, the Great Circle Mount, they'll state, no, we didn't build the Great Circle Mount or the Octagon Mount in Ohio. It was here when we got here. We did not build the Serpent Mount. It was here when we got here. So something is going on. Something is going on. And it's, um, it's, it's absolutely incredible. 
Now, have any of these mounds been excavated uh, thoroughly to where we can see what's inside or what's underneath them? Well, many of them were excavated at the turn of the 19th and the 20th century, but uh, a lot of that information has been obfuscated, has been uh, deliberately managed by the powers that be. And so the giant skeletons that were exhumed um, suddenly mysteriously vanish. And, and modern day archeologists will insist that you know, nothing happened, there's nothing to see here, uh, there, are no, there are no giants, and we, we get this all over, you know, for, no matter where you go. But if you go back to when they first started digging into these things, nine, 10, 12 footers were found. Um, and that's in the Smithsonian's records. You can go back to the Smith and read their accounts, nine foot skeletons were being exhumed. There was a 12 footer in Ohio that was exhumed. Uh, and all this is just, it magically disappears. Well, they didn't know how to measure. These people were exaggerating, blah, blah, blah. They have all these excuses. Well, do you guys actually, does the Smithsonian have the skeletons? Why can't we see them? And so when I was out on Catalina Island, I'm going to leapfrog to some other research here. Uh, when I was out in, in, in Catalina Island, and uh, uh, I was able to access the archives, what amazed me was we found uh, all these records and pictures from 1919 and 1921. Now, this was a cache of records that had gone missing for about 50 years, okay? It was a Ralph Glidden cache of records. Uh, John Borgina, the former curator of the Catalina Island Museum, discovered them. It was in a chest. And this made the front page of the Los Angeles Times a number of years back. And, the, and, the, you know, and so I got wind of this thing, and I asked the curator if I could come out and examine the artifacts. And he said, no. This went back and forth for about six months maybe a little bit longer, until I found out, got wind that they were creating a new museum, I offered to contribute $1,000 to the museum. At that point, I was allowed access to the records. I went out there with my camera, and within an hour, which is really rare for the archives, I hit pay dirt. I found elongated skeletons, elongated skulls, six fingers, and I found the one photograph which has become iconic at, the, at this point, and it's, it went viral, and other, other so-called researchers have taken my research, put their name on it, and you know, made a lot of money off of YouTube. There's nothing you can do. I, I can't copyright a photograph. But it was my research. I was the one that found the photograph and, and had it, the photograph analyzed by three different analysts. It's in my book, Amatrail of the Nephilim. And what we discovered was that that skeleton, Ralph Glidden had exhumed the skeleton. It's, it, he took a picture of it in situ. Very large, very large head. And three different researchers all put that skeleton at just under nine feet. And that doesn't fit the record. That's, that's something else. And Ralph Gordon even talked about this. He said, I think I've uncovered a race that was before the Native Americans. And he was right. Uh, of course, he was immediately, all that was immediately put down. Everything vanished and all traces of it were gone except for that one photograph. And I discovered that photograph and I published it. Now, before we get into a little bit more about uh, who and what these entities or beings were, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Serpent Mound and what's so uh, special and profound about that one. Well, the Serpent Mound is amazing because the Serpent Mound um, shows us that, uh, once again, Native Americans would go in there and they would go, well... You know, we're here, but um, uh, we, just, we, 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 we saw the Serpent Mound, but we didn't make this. Now, there's signage at the, uh, you know, let me stop for a second here. I'm having, let me see if I can, I'm, 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 your, your, your screen is like so tiny. At least I can see you, so I'll, I'll continue. So the bottom line is this, that uh, when you go to the Serpent Mound now, um, you will see that uh, there's signage. And the signage says that the Shawnee built the Serpent Mound. Well, we're saying that, okay, that's, that's what you guys, you know, want to say. But when we interviewed Chief Joseph Riverwind in the film, uh, and we asked Chief Joseph about this, well, Chief Joseph showed us that 
the chief of the Shawnee basically states on the record that the Shawnee did not build the serpent mound. It was there when the Shawnee came into the land. We hear this over and over and over again. And the problem is, is that uh, the white answer, you want to talk about racism, the white anthropologists refuse to believe the Native American oral tradition because it's oral tradition. Well, you know, and then if, if people like me, if I stand up and go, well, the Shawnee are saying this, I'm accused of being a racist. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, I'm echoing and, and verbatim what the Shawnee chief, Chief, jo chief Wallace, states that no we didn't build a serpent mound it was here when we came into the land and yet the anthropologists and the archaeologists insist that the shawnee make it as chief joseph riverwind says in the film this is a great injustice because once again uh they're trying to say that that you know native americans built it native americans saying but we didn't build it so who, who are we to believe Right. And did you get any other insights from uh, any Native Americans um, or any other insights from Chief Riverwind about what, you know, the mounds could possibly mean and be all about? Well, the serpent, let me get a slurp here. Yeah, sure. Of course. The serpent mound is the largest serpent earthen mound on the planet. The largest by far. There's nothing else that even compares to it. It's in a place called Peebles, Ohio. And uh, it's, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, ab absolutely amazing. And when we, when we go there uh, and, and when we look at this, what we see is that the serpent mound undulates over the landscape. And the tail is coiled, and then these undulations appear. And when you're walking next to it, there's an asphalt path that, so you can walk all the way around this thing. So when you're walking around it, it's like, you know, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. There's a tower that they built uh, to the right. It's about a two, two and a half story tower. So you climb up the tower and then you kind of get an idea of what you're looking at. But you still really don't understand the enormity of it. We flew the drone way up in the sky. And at that point in time, the entire uh, iconography, earthen iconography of the serpent comes into focus. And what we see, all these undulations and the serpent's head, the mouth is open like this. And in front of it is an egg-shaped object. And I wrote a paper on this, the serpent mount, a new paradigm. And what I mean by that is this, that when you go back to the Genesis 3.15 um, scripture, okay, thousands of years old, there are a bunch of uh, people in this scene. And I believe it's Yeshua, the pre-incarnate Christ, who was there. Adam and Eve are over here, the dragon is over there. And he utters this incredible passage of scripture, which sets up the rest of the biblical narrative. He points to the dragon, the serpent, and says, your seed, your offspring, will be an enmity at war with the offspring the seed of the woman. What will come from the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. That sets up the rest of the biblical narrative. Folks, that, that scripture, that prophecy is thousands of years old. And when we go to the, the serpent mound in Ohio, that's what we see. The, the mouth of that serpent is wide open in the act of swallowing an egg. In other words, Whoever did that, and I believe it's fallen angel technology, Nephilim architecture, is basically saying, no, 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 no. The dragon will prevail. The dragon will swallow the seed of the serpent. And he almost does when you actually go back and look at, at what's, what's in the account, the biblical account, you'll see that he, he tried to do it many, many times uh, to, to thwart that from happening. The bottom line is this. There was an altar there. Human sacrifice was done there. Uh, there was a pillar which was cast down. It's now below. The Serpent Mount is on a plateau of land. And then it, it abruptly falls off. There's a waterway uh, below it. And we, Fritz Zimmerman and I, in the film, we actually 
found the obelisk, which is there. And I've been threatening to do this, but I want to, I want to email the Ohio Historical Museum and pay, get a crane in there and lift this thing out of there. And then, you know, get, get some people who know stone and see if there's anything written on it. I mean, who knows what's there? We don't know. It was probably pushed down 150 years ago, 200 years ago. We don't know. We don't know. It's, it's there. It's in one piece. And, it, and it's like laying in the dirt like this. It's about seven or eight feet tall. There was also an altar. And we believe human sacrifice was carried out there. The undulations of the serpent correspond to the equinoxes and solstices. The, the, the mouth of the serpent, and when you align the mouth of the serpent, right, here's the serpent's mouth. There's, there's let's say, the, the obelisk in front. It points to the summer solstice sunrise. It also points to the constellation Draco. It also is built on an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. So all this relates to other sites all over the Americas, which is absolutely mind boggling. So these could be some sort of ancient sacred sites for these Nephilim entities. Uh, you know, we found the, the, you found the giant bones, the elongated skulls, the six fingers all surrounding these mounds. Um, let's talk about what these Nephilim actually are. I mean, you know, I'm sure plenty of my audience is familiar with some of the basic stories uh, from the book of Enoch and biblical stories containing giants. But what are, what are we dealing with really when we're talking about these Nephilim? The Nephilim are the progeny, the offspring of the fallen angels of heaven, the ones that rebelled, the bad guys, and the women of earth, the human women of earth. They took wives, they went into them, that's coitus, and the offspring is the Nephilim. It's, it's, a, it's a hybrid, for lack of a better word. And it basically is an entity that uh, in some ways is immortal. Uh, let me skip forward here. Our work in Watchers 10 on the Kandahar giant. And, and we know this from numerous witnesses. There was a 12-foot giant that was shot and killed by a platoon in the Kandahar province. Uh, the the powers that be, the deep state, didn't like that information leaking out. I was contacted by a member of the deep state and threatened in three different ways. Uh, you know, basically, shut up, back off, quit talking about this. Well, I haven't backed off and I haven't stopped talking about it. Um, the Kandahar giant was real. And that opens up a whole can of worms. Uh, how old was this thing? It was 12 feet tall. It had red hair, it had six fingers. It had double rows of teeth. It stunk to high heaven. I mean, the, the, the stench from this thing was like overwhelming. What if it was thousands of years old? We don't know. There's so much that we don't know. But we get glimpses from people, from whistleblowers, who contact me and tell me these stories. And it was interesting. Steve Quayle had a whistleblower that told him about a, another giant that was flown out. He, he was a helicopter pilot that flew this thing out. Well, okay, that's a story. But guess what? We had our shooter contact the helicopter pilot, and they, they talked, and they realized that, wait a minute, this isn't the same deal. I, I flew this giant out in, at year, let's say, 2003, but you shot your giant in 2001. So it's not the same thing. Now there's two of them. We've had other people come on the record uh, they will, they actually, they will come on the record. They'll come up to me at conferences. They'll tell me something. They'll show me their credentials and they just back away and I never see them again. It's real. The giants are real. The Nephilim are real. The Nephilim roam the Americas. There's no doubt about that. These nine, 10, 12 foot skeletons, which are exhumed are, are the remnants are, are the proof of a Nephilim. The reason why all this information is buried because it points back to the veracity of the biblical narrative, number one. Number two, it points to the validity of the Native American First Nation people's oral tradition that talked about the giants in Milan. And so the powers that be don't like this because it points back to a supernatural worldview. Most of these people are ardent Darwinists. Darwinism has no place for the supernatural. They are, they are at loggerheads with each other. There'll never, there'll never be a joining of the two. Never, It'll never happen. 
Yeah, and once academia establishes a narrative, I mean, there's no going back. I mean, you're going to either be fired, your tenure taken away. I mean, there's no no way to avoid, you know, once that's been established, unless, you know, so much overwhelming proof keeps coming out like it is. I mean, it's it's coming out now, and it's it's very exciting times for this. No, it is, and that's that's why we're on the trail. You know, there's six films in the series. Um, if you guys are interested in it, instant gratification you can go to streaming.lamarzuli.net streaming.lamarzuli.net you can watch all six for about 25 bucks if you were to buy the hard copies that's 120 dollars. so it gives you an idea you save a lot of money by just going and streaming and plus it's instant gratification you don't have to wait for us to package it and send it out so streaming is great but then there's collectors who like dvds that can go to our website lamarzuli.net and you can buy the DVDs, but streaming is definitely the way to go. And we'll oh, yeah. go there. And we'll leave some links to those in the description as well. It. Yes. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit more about these uh, elongated Paracas skulls. Uh, this seems to be kind of a global phenomenon. Uh, they're found near monolithic megalithic structures. Uh, they're found, you know, all over the world. Uh, Brian Forrester, who I've spoken with recently, has done plenty of work with this. And the DNA results as well has been especially interesting um, as long um, um, you know, along with the kind of uh, morphological structures and everything like that. So kind of talk about these skulls. Um, you, you know, many people argue that there's just the uh, the headboarding that the natives did to kind of make their, their own skulls longer. But uh, yeah, there you go. Let's uh, let's talk about that. Well, this is the deal. Um, it's so easy. Oh, this is all the result of cranial deformation. Well, well, how do you know that? What qualifies you to say that? You know, have you ever actually looked at a cranial uh, headboarded skull, a headboarded skull, cranial deformation? Do you know the difference? What about this guy? And this, this is a, what we call a cinnamon skull. And look at the back. And look at the top. First thing I want you to notice is this that this skull is about right next to me. I mean, if, if, I, if I go like this, so it's right next to my head, all right? So you can see it's not a giant. That's the first thing, all right? So we're not saying they're giants. Is this the result of cranial deformation? So in, in our new film, and I got to get a prop, hold on. <laughs> yeah, no problem. This is great. We get to have visuals and actually uh, see what's going on with these. So, yeah. It's a good thing. Well, in, in, in episode six, shameless plug, all right, DNA, the final results. You can see the elongated skull. Seven years, seven years of work, of research. And I want to thank our donors who gave us a lot of money so we were able to go down to Peru numerous times with different teams and extract the DNA. So first of all, we'll talk about the morphological, the structural differences of these very enigmatic elongated skulls, all right? The first thing you see is the foramen magnum, which is right here. This is the foramen magnum. Notice how, how close it is to the rear of the skull. There's, there's no room, all right? There's absolutely no room. This foramen magnum should be here, should be in the center of the skull. So when you, when you, when you hold it like this, in other words, in order to make it so this, the human, this entity would be looking out, right? You've got to have a longer neck, have to have a longer neck. Otherwise, this thing would be looking down all the time. This is not normal. You cannot change the placement of the foramen magnum by cranial deformation, by cradle headboarding. You can't move it from here to here. Can't do that. It's impossible. All right. So that's the first smoking gun. And that's the work of our anthropologist, Rick Woodward. Rick was the one who showed us this. He's an anthropologist and also an archaeologist. And he said, LA, I, I, I get it. Most people were looking at this, the elongation. I turned the skull over. And what I found here was amazing. In the film, 
in the film, we've got doctors, surgeons, archaeologists, anthropologists, optometrists, uh, and a chiropractor coming on the record telling us that this is not the result of cranial deformation, that it has to be genetic. It's another species. You can't arrive at this through cradle headboarding. Now, either all these people are wacky and crazy, and they're not, okay? They're all, they're all at the top of their game. They're all medical professionals. Something is going on here. They're stating on the record that this is a genetic anomaly. And that's exactly what it is. So the first thing is, is the foramen magnum. The second thing to notice is this, that these are sutures right here. This is a suture that you can see, all right? And a, and a normal human being, we've got the frontal plate right here, my forehead. And then I've got a sagittal suture, which runs from here all the way back to my occipital plate, my rear plate, which is right there. Guess what? Here, let me, let me still this so you can see it. And I'm, I, I'm going to do it this way. So there's the, there's the frontal plate. And you'll notice the complete absence of a sagittal suture. Yeah, it's like it's completely separate. It, it's not there. Yeah. It, it's not, it's, there's no, not even a vestige of it. There's nothing there. There is no sagittal suture. Now, there's a disease called craniosynatosis, which will take the sagittal suture, which should be here, right, and, and, and close it up. When it does that, you usually get a ridge. There's not a vestige of it. There's nothing. There's no trace. In other words, it was never there. So Very now we've got two genetic anomalies. Yeah. Two genetic anomalies. Look right here at the zygomatic arch. This is a zygomatic arch. It's incredibly robust. Doctors, surgeons say on our film, we don't have this in our features. We don't. So that's number three. The zygomatic arch is extremely robust. Extremely robust. The number four would be, look at the, the eyes. Look at the orbits. They are 25 to 30% larger than a normal human being. Okay, there's, this, there's something called pupillary distance, PD. And a normal human being, the centers of the pupils from here to here would be about 65 millimeters. In the Paracas skull, which is where this is from, Paracas, Peru, they are 42 millimeters. So you can't, you can't arrive at these genetic anomalies through cranial deformation. Yes, you can elongate the skull. And we actually, in the film, we show a skull that has been elongated through, through pressure, through cranial deformation. But you can't arrive at these morphological differences through cranial deformation. So right off the bat, we've got, you know, five genetic anomalies. Look at, look at the frontal plate. Look at this thing. Look at this. Look at this. I mean, are, are you kidding me? Yeah, that, that yeah, does this, not this look not like a, it could, be, could have been created by cradle boarding. Yeah, this is not a human being. This is another species. In, in my opinion, what we are looking at is one of the tribes of a Nephilim, which escaped uh, when 3,500 years ago, the conquest of Canaan happened, when Joshua and Caleb came into the land. There were Nephilim all throughout that land, and they were different tribes. And I believe these different tribes... Um, basically pointed to different genetic characteristics. Yes, there were giants. We understand that. But the Horites were cave dwellers. And the opt optometrist that comes on the record and, and shows the, uh, the eye sockets 30%, 25 to 30% larger, the pupillary distant, much narrower. This entity could see in the dark. It had night vision. So when we were down in Peru the last time, with Tim Alberino and the crew. Um, Tim had an archaeologist who took us way out to the reserve. Now, I'd never been there before. It's off limits. It's the most, one of the most barren places you'll ever visit. There's nothing, there's nothing green for miles. Nothing. Not a thing. It's barren wasteland. And when you get there, um, there's, there are the remnants of these entities' dwellings. 
And they're all right by the ocean. It's a beautiful view. They're all underground. They're all underground. And I asked the archaeologist, we, we saw one. We actually uncovered the original stone shaft, which went down probably two to three stories. And I said, well, how did these people see down there? And he said, I asked him specifically, were there signs of torches or torchlight? He said, no, we've never found that. Well, how did, how did they see? He said, we don't know. Now, he could have done, have gone to an optometrist and said, what's going on? But they don't do that down there. They just shuffle paper with all due respect. So really not a lot gets done. They don't care. Uh, and I, I say that in a mournful way. I love Peru. I love the people of Peru. But, you know, they're sitting on all this evidence and they don't do doodly squat with it. It's people like myself and others who are finding out what's really going on. We're the only team that took DNA samples, and I'll get to that in just a second. The only team that I'm aware of, we took 58 DNA samples. But going back, the optometrist who looked at this and examined this skull believed that these creatures, whatever they were, had night vision. They were either cave dwellers or lived underground. His worst, not mine. Well, guess what? One of the Nephilim tribes that, we, that, we, that is listed in the biblical prophetic narrative is called the Horites. Horites. And the Horites means cave dwellers. The Anakim means long neck. And in order to make this thing work, in order to have this guy even function, right, he must have had a longer neck. So are we looking at the Anakim, the Horites? We don't know. More study needs to be done. What we do know, and this is what's maddening because, you know, you go through all the research, jump through all the hoops. We, we, we did all the protocols. Our lead archaeologist, Mando Gonzalez, and I, we extracted 58 samples from 18 skulls, nine from the Ica Museum, nine from Senior One <clears throat> Paracas History Museum. Out of the 58 samples, 28 of them sequenced. We took them up to the Paleo DNA Lab. Uh, this cost a lot of money, obviously. And Paleo DNA Lab gave us all the results. We showed us in the film. Not all of them, but many of them showed a Middle Eastern connection. In other words, when you extract DNA, you get the mitochondrial DNA, which is from the maternal, the mother's side of, of the equation. And then you get the nuclear DNA. So far, we've never been able to get nuclear DNA. You're looking at these skulls, which are, you know, 2,000 years old, you know, 800 years old. I mean, they're, they're badly disintegrated. It's very difficult to get uh, to coax DNA out of them. So the mitochondrial DNA from the female line, female side of the equation, showed a Eastern European haplogroup or a uh, Middle Eastern haplogroup. Let me show you another skull. This is the 1,935-year-old baby skull, which we unwrapped at Senior Wands Museum. It was about 18 months. Look at the elongation. Look at the elongation. This wow. is 18 months. Yeah. Look at, that. Look at the eye sockets. My gosh. They're 30% larger than a human being, easily. Look at this. Look yeah, at that, this. that is fascinating. Yeah. 18, 18 months? Are you kidding me? Even if it's two years or two and a half years, whatever it is, we had a, den a dentist. That's why we arrived at the age. He looked at the teeth and figured it was about 18 months to two and a half years. You're trying to tell me this is the result of cranial deformation? There's no way. That's genetic. And yet modern-day anthropologists and modern-day archaeologists refuse to look at our research. We're shut out. In fact, we've got samples that we could uh, sequence right now, but many of the labs in the United States won't touch us because, which is discrimination. We have money from our donors still left over. We want to sequence these babies. They won't touch us because they're afraid. Why are you guys so afraid? Why not just go where the science goes? But see, this is, a, you know, we, look, when we took the samples and originally and we fed them to the machines, the machine has no idea. They don't care about my, my worldview or my belief system or my, my, my worldview. They, have, they, they don't care. They're going to spit out the data. 
that's science. And we went with the science. If the science had said something different, I wouldn't be on your show. But the right. science is pointing to the, valid the validity of our hypothesis that these are non-human entities, that they are, in fact, the remnants of a Nephilim. Notice where the foramen magnum is. Now, Joe Taylor, who did this, this, the skull was very fragile, but you can see the hole is where, the, where he allowed it to get, get so you could mount the thing. But this is where the foramen magnum was, right here. And you can see that it's all the way to the posterior of the skull, all the way in the back. It should be, once again, right here. So you can't do that. You, you can't move the foramen magnum. You can't, you can't enlarge through cranial deformation uh, the, size of the, the size of the eyes or enlarge the zygomatic arch. You can't do that. Now, so, as far as the, the DNA, it, it basically shows that the uh, maternal side is, is human, but of different, um, you know, from very far away uh, places than they were found, and uh, that there is no really uh, determined paternal origin. Is that right? Correct. We've never been able to coax nuclear DNA out. And that's the other side of the equation. If, if we could coax it out and the lab would go, um, it's a primate, but we don't know what it is, then we would say, wow, okay. Because we believe it's Nephilim. We, we believe that this is not a human. It's not. It, it's some sort of a hybrid entity. And it's amazing how um, academia has shut this down. We can't get our samples. Uh, you know, we've got money. We're ready to throw the money in a lab, but we can't get a lab to take the samples. Why is that? Because they're discriminating against people like me because they don't like the results. Our archaeologist, our contact down in Peru, shame on him. He basically threw us under the bus. I won't mention his name, but he threw us under the bus. Oh, the samples are all contaminated. No, sir, they're not all contaminated. If they were contaminated, then we would have gotten nuclear DNA. We didn't get any nuclear DNA. And we took my DNA samples and we took Mondo Gonzalez's samples. Mondo and I were dressed in head to toe lab suits, head coverings. In fact, um, let me see if there's a shot of that. Not on this, but we were dressed in head to toe lab suits. We had, you know, hairnets, okay, we had masks. We had our eyes showing like this with goggles, or in my case, glasses, full lab suits, double sleeves, rubber gloves, the whole deal. And every single sample, when, when, the, when we would test a new sample, Mondo and I would go out of the room, strip off the old lab suits, blow each other off with compressed air, and then redon new lab suits, blow each other off again, and then go back in. I mean, and what we did, we would take powder, let's say from, let's say this area right here, we would go in and we would take the, take the Dremel tool and scrape off the outer level to get rid of any contamination. Then we would get fresh powder, fresh powder. And that would be immediately collected and, and put in flagged and tagged by Chase Klotsky, who was our, uh, our field. Uh, she basically flagged and tagged all the samples for us. So, uh, you know, <laughs> We, we did it by the book, and the results speak for themselves, and I stand by those results. The results speak for themselves. And you know what, folks? If you're interested, you can watch this tonight. You can go to streaming.lamarzulli.net, streaming.lamarzulli.net, and your mind will be blown. And it should be, because that's what we're doing here. But, you know, that's why we're on the trail. That's yeah. Now – Different researchers have different takes on these elongated skulls and even the giant bones. Um, you know, you, you hear some of them say that they were ancient aliens that bred with uh, humans. Uh, do you think essentially that these ancient, that, that these uh, Nephilim are the same thing as aliens? Um, basically, you know, the same thing, just different terms, um, but more malevolent. Okay, here's the deal. The people on the other side of the aisle, and I, I've spoken with these guys, they hold tenaciously to Zechariah Sechen, um, Eric von Daniken. And they all source the Gilgamesh legend. Well, Gilgamesh is Nimrod, and Nimrod is Gilgamesh. And if that's true, 
then what they're looking at are entities that not from some other planet, Zeta Reticuli, they are interdimensional entities, they are fallen angels. If Gilgamesh is Nimrod and Nimrod is Gilgamesh, then they're one and the same. And Nimrod became Nephilim through ritualistic sex magic. We're not that far apart. We all know that something is going on, that the truth has been hidden, deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. We both agree on that. We just disagree as to what we're going to hold uh, basically sacrosanct. I hold the biblical prophetic narrative sacrosanct because unlike the Gilgamesh legend, which just deals with a certain period of time with Enki and Enlil and all this stuff, you can make a, a, a case that what we're looking at, all you need to do is plug fallen angels and you get the same result. Yeah, they came down, they interbred with women, and the result were the Nephilim. That was the first incursion. The flood of Noah happened, wiped them all out. Then there was another incursion. And we see them rise up all in the promised land, in the Levant, in the promised land. Nephilim central. That's what it is. And it's all, it's, it's, all, it's all in the biblical narrative. Do you think it's possible that any of them would possibly still be surviving today? Yeah, we talked about that. That's the giant of Kandahar. I mean, that, that, that was shot in 2001. It was a 12-footer. Right. Flaming red hair, six fingers, six toes, double rows of teeth. I mean, so essentially, I, these beings could be hiding out in caves. And, you they know. are. Wow. A absolutely, they are. That's, that's where they've been. What's interesting is the villagers around that area knew exactly what was going on. And they would take a goat and stake the goat outside their village a good distance away. basically. Here's your food for the day. Don't bother us. That was the deal. That was the deal. That is fascinating. Yeah, it is. Now, we, we have a few minutes left. I'd like to talk about your research that you've done on the incident at Fatima. Um, you have a, a little bit of a different take on it, and it's very fascinating. Um, for those that don't know, um, maybe just give a brief overview of what happened at Fatima and your take on it. Fatima is very complex, and I, I did two films on that. It's over two hours worth of uh, information. We, I was lucky enough because of our good friend Francisco Carrera um, in Portugal. Uh, Francisco was our producer there, our good friend, our late night dinner host, and, and just our aficionado and, and, and great friend, and I miss him. We, we went back every year. We saw him, uh, but because of COVID, Last, this year, 2020, we didn't go. We were all set to go back to Portugal and go on another adventure with Francisco, but we didn't because of COVID. And who knows what 2021 will bring. But Francisco lined up a, the creme de la creme, the researchers that have spent decades researching the Fatima apparition, all based on Fina de Armada's uh, uh, research into the Fatima archives. So I get this. If, if there are people that want to believe in the Fatima apparitions, believe what you want to believe. You know, people have a right to believe what they want to believe. I'm not here to disparage anyone's belief system. If you want to believe that it was the Virgin Mary that appeared to the three kids, knock your socks off. I believe something different. I believe it was a UFO phenomenon. So if three children are tending sheep. They are illiterate. It's 1917. World War I is raging. At the same time, the Bolsheviks, have taken control over Russia, and it's now gone communist. Europe is quaking in their boots because they're wondering whether this Bolshevik revolution is going to spill into Europe. They're terrified. Also, World War I is raging. The death count continues. Uh, there are no planes in Lisbon, Portugal. None. Maybe one, maybe. But in 1917, no planes. Most people in Portugal had never seen any type of aerial phenomenon. And her three illiterate shepherds, Lucia, who's the eldest, who was 10, Francisco, nine, and Jacinta, only seven years old. Lucia, the eldest, survives into adulthood and becomes a nun. So the three children are out there, and they, they see this apparition. And this lady appears to them. She's wearing a short skirt, and she's holding some kind of sphere. She communicates with them telepathically, and she tells them, to come back on the 13th of every month. The kids go back, tell their parents, 
it, it causes a huge uproar. The priest, the parish priest, Father Figuera, thinks it's demonic. Um, it, all this controversy, this is in May. What is omitted from the official narrative is that several months before, a group of psychics got together and through the occult technique of automatic writing, these psychics went into a trance. One of them was possessed and automatic writing ensued. And it was from right to left, like I'm doing now. And it was signed Stella Matutina, left to right. Stella Matutina, the bright morning star, that's another name for Lucifer, Satan. And that message, when held up to a mirror, stated that something wondrous was going to happen in Portugal on May 13th. The psychics published this in several newspapers. So that's a matter of historical record. So why does God use a bunch of psychics who are evoking, you know, entities from a second heaven, i.e. demons? He doesn't work that way. And so something did happen on May 13th, and that apparition did appear. What we discovered in the Fatima film, I mean, this is like a, a whole, we could talk this for hours on this. Um, bottom line is, this went on, these apparitions went from May to October. In August, the children were sequestered, jailed, and prevented from going to see the apparition. In September, the crowd swelled 30, 40,000 people, whatever it was, 20,000 people. I'm not sure of the actual numbers, but a lot of people. And they were told by the parish priest and the, and the bishop and all these different people and the magistrates and the mayor to go back and tell the entity, give us a sign. So the kids go back and they ask the entity for a sign. And the entity says, yeah, come back on October 13th and there will be a sign. The word gets out, upwards of 70 to 80,000 people show up in Fatima, and Lucy is there, Francisco, Jacinta, and the apparition said she would that the sign would happen at noon. Well, it's one o'clock, there is no sign. Finally, finally, the children goes, here she comes, here she comes. Well, no one sees anything but the kids. It's been raining all night, okay? Finally, the clouds break and the sun appears. In front of the sun comes a cloud. Out of the cloud comes a spinning disc-like object, which then falls like this to the crowd, then spins back up again. Finally, it comes out and goes over the crowd like this and then disappears, okay? Eyewitnesses, and all this is from the 1917 handwritten documents that Fina de Armada found in the sanctuary at Fatima. They are the handwritten documents, not happened 10 years or 11 years or 20 years later, handwritten what the witnesses saw. I looked up and saw a dull silver disc. That's what the witnesses say. I looked up and saw a dull silver disc. What does that sound like to you and me in modernity? It's a UFO. Oh, yeah. Then there's the picture that Jose Machado, years after Fina de Armada, Jose Machado, which is a professor of semiology, he, in other words, he goes in and looks at, 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 at pictures and icons and, and film and all this stuff and, and analyzes them. Well, he got access to the Fatima archives, to the actual photographs that were taken that day by Joshua Benolio, the photographer, the royal photographer, who was in the field. He took 12 photographs. He was able to, um, uh, Jose was able to publish only two of them. We published his book here in the States. We're going to republish it again. I'll probably add more to it. But the bottom line is this. There's a photograph by Joshua Benolio, 1917, October 13th. And he's way back here and way in the distance or he's here way in the distance is the crowd. And you can see the apparition site. And directly above the apparition site is a disc-like object. It's about it's just about like this in the photograph, just about like that in the photograph. And under here is where the apparition site is. And he's, he comes in on the record in the film, Fatima 2, Strange Phenomena. There's two films. If you want to watch them, go to streaming.lamarzulli.net. 
streaming.lamarzuli.net. Watch Fatima 1, watch Fatima 2. He says that this disc-like object that appeared in the film, right, directly over the apparition site, was not a smudge, a chemical burn, uh, a scratch. It was intrinsic in the original glass plate. No one discovered this. It lay in the archives for almost a hundred years. No one knew about it until Jose Machado went in and said, we've got a problem. There's something in this picture, <clears throat> which we don't know what it is. It's a disc-like object, which corroborates the witnesses' stories. I looked up and saw a dull silver disc. Now, that's very interesting. Now, this being more of sort of like a, a metaphysical phenomenon, would you think that our military has actually been able to reverse engineer some of the technology that's used for these UFOs? Well, we are on the fifth rung of the, of, of the disclosure ladder. In 1917, and I wrote this book, shameless plug, I've got a lot of props here, folks. This book was written, UFO Disclosure, was a 70-year-old cover-up, right? This book was written because Commander David Faber was on Tucker Carlson's show. And we don't have time to get into the whole thing, but, but at the end, Tucker Carlson asked him, well, Commander Faber, what do you think this was? And Commander David Faber looks right at the camera and says, whatever this was, was not of this world. That's rung number one on the, on the disclosure ladder. Several months later, Luis Elizondo comes up, Rung number two, Luis Elizondo declares that they have metal that's been retrieved from crashed UFOs. Rung number three, oh, guess what? They tested the metal, and there are isotopes in the metal that are not of this world. Rung number four, hello. Rung number four, should do it over here. Rung number four is when the Pentagon comes out and admits that you uh, unidentified aerial phenomena is real. We don't know what they are, but it's real, okay? Rung number five is, and this is mind-boggling, is when, once again, the, US, the Pentagon, the government, basically states that we have in our possession off-world vehicles. No one does anything. It's, it's, it's like this, not, a, not even a blip. My phone doesn't ring. It's just unbelievable. We yeah. have in our possession off-world vehicles. Well, what world are we talking about? And who made these off-world vehicles? And I'm wondering well, why now are they coming out with this information and are, are they trying to repair us? Is it something? They are. This is, this is disclosure. This is, look, who picks up the phone and calls Tucker Carlson's producer and goes, hey, 2017, we'd like to have this guy on. Or no, you will have Commander David Fravor on your show next Friday on Tucker Carlson. We want him there. He's going to talk about UFOs. We're also going to give you what was classified film, and you can show that on the film, uh, on the show. But when, here is the script, how Tucker asked these questions. So David, Commander David Fravor is an unknown. Doesn't have a book, doesn't have a DVD. No one's ever heard of this guy. He's an absolute unknown. He winds up on Tucker Carlson primetime. How does that work? Who's got the power to do that? It's a managed agenda. It's being unveiled deliberately. And yeah, they're going someplace with it. 5.2, they recycled Commander David Fravor, who stated that when he tried to close in on this tic-tac-shaped object, this thing jammed its radar. That is an act of war. So run number six is when they will probably show us either film or still photographs. <coughs> I don't know. Maybe they'll, they'll bring out a retired general in, somebody from the Air Force in, maybe a group of people, but they're going to show the American people, the people of the world. Well, they've already stated the phenomenon is real. No one cares. It's just amazing. Yeah, it is. That no is amazing. I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much, L.A., for coming on. Before you head out, um, is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to plug before you leave? Yeah, I'm working on two UFO films. What I did is went back and I'm – I'm re-editing. It was my first independent film, uh, uh, in their own words, UFOs are real. Um, I'm, I'm condensing it, polishing it. You know, it was my first film as an editor and a director. So I've done nine films since then. So 
I'm going back and I'm changing the whole thing and, and redoing it, making it better. I will release that again in, probably in January. Uh, and then right on the heels of that, there's a whole new UFO film with new interviews with people. Uh, for instance, um, uh, Nick Pope comes on the record. George Norrie comes on the record. Um, uh, some real heavy hitters come on the record talking about the phenomenon because this is, this is the most important thing in the history of the world other than the second coming of Jesus Christ, which can't be too far off, by the way. You know, so yeah, uh, with, with everything that's happening, I have to admit, you know, the nuts and bolts UFO thing has fallen more and more away from what people are looking at. And I think that's a good thing because I happen to agree it has to be some kind of more of an interdimensional type thing that we're dealing with. Well, it, it's both. It's not either or. It's both and. It's yeah. interdimensional, but there's also technology Correct. And, yeah. and nuts and bolts. But Which it makes it very difficult to, to, to kind of discern, but it's, it's fascinating. L.A., thank you again so much. I'll leave thank the links you. to all your sites in the uh, description there, and I'd love to have you back on after those uh, new films come out. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Great. Thank we'll you. talk soon. You got it. Live long and prosper.